these out into rural areas. And, and gosh, you think about the, the impact even that Elon Musk's Starlink has had, because right. now you can buy a home out in the middle of nowhere and have high speed, low latency, reliable internet. No, it's a it's it's a game changer, I think. And um, speaking of game changers, <laughs> tactical civics. I mean, this is. I have to admit that I, you know, I read up on um, the things that you guys are talking about, and the ideas that you're exploring, and the ideas that you're trying to get the rest of us to explore. And it's really mind blowing. It's it's very it's a very elegant concept in in its simplicity, and I think it's very very powerful. Um, so why don't we start at the beginning? Tell us about the impetus for tactical civics. How did this How did this come about? Okay, yeah. So tactical civics began with two brothers, uh, Oscar and David Zuniga. And David Zuniga is the founder of tactical civics. He and his brother Oscar were both engineers. Mm. Uh, David was an architectural engineer, and I believe Oscar is an electrical engineer. I'm not entirely sure about that. Mm. Uh, but after 9-11, uh, and of course, as an architectural engineer, uh, David had uh, more questions than there were answers uh, yes. to, you know, uh, to be given. Yes. As most real professional engineers, uh, uh, you know, did have those questions, uh, and, and they weren't being answered. He joined, uh, both of them joined a group that you probably remember called architects and engineers for nine 11 truth and transparency or yes. for nine 11 truth. And it was an organization that talked about doing a lot, but, um, didn't do anything. And mm. so, you know, so that created frustration. And so fast forward six years later in 2007, David is building a new house uh, in the Texas Hill Country, and he's the general contractor on it and and uh, uh, doing quite a bit of the work. And he's living in a trailer on the property uh, overseeing yeah. the process. And and he really had a uh, I mean, David you know, was a Christian, uh, had been since his late teens, uh, had founded uh, Christian schools uh, with a classical education model, mm. you know, teaching rhetoric and teaching logic and, you know, very classical education. He had founded four Christian schools, had built schools, designed schools, did a lot of industrial uh, architectural engineering. He was a pilot. Uh, he was a scuba instructor. Uh, he's done a lot. He's, very he's accomplished person, very accomplished person. So he's building a house and he really, uh, he just began to, uh, ask God, what is going on here? Yeah. How, you know, how did we become, how did we go from this beautiful, elegant, as word you used earlier, exquisite republic, mm. unlike anything that had existed yeah. uh, in the annals of human history? You know, St. George Tucker wrote about the fact that it had only existed in theory and that what existed in theory was put to practice. And that was this idea of power residing in the people themselves. Mm. How do we go from there to this, this, uh, uh, you know, den of thieves yeah. uh, and money laundering and rent seeking and uh, corruption. And it's become and unrecognizable, Jeff. 
Oh, it, it, it's, it's beyond unrecognizable. Actually, it is, it's actually very recognizable. Just read uh, Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto and the Ten Planks of Communism, and it's very, rec- it's very recognizable. Uh, and also just look at history and uh, look at the tendency of, of, of those who have access to power to gather it to themselves and become rent seekers, which is to increase their own wealth while adding no value to, uh, you know, to the overall wealth of of society. And they it's, call us useless eaters. It, yeah, I know. Yeah, it, it's it it is it's entirely upside down. Yeah. So what happened with David is he he went on this. Uh, he was getting God was answering his prayers. He was getting a lot of revelation. He spent 14 months, read like 110 books. Mm. Uh, He has an encyclopedic knowledge of the founding generation, our history, and of everything that's been written since to uh, whistleblower books that have talked about uh, the the organized crime, you know, in in, in uh, Washington D.C., the origins of our three-letter agencies and the CIA, yeah. the FBI, books like Smedley Butler, who was the most decorated uh, Marine uh, general, I think, uh, uh, in history, and wrote a book called "War Is a Racket," and he right. just lays it all out as a as this decorated war veteran that uh, they weren't fighting for freedom or liberty; they were just carrying the water for multinational corporations and and so you know so out of that uh, he and his brother started spitballing ideas of uh, how do we restore this like how do we return to the rule of law Mm. how do we uh bring our government back in line with the constitution yeah and so that resulted in tactical civics and interrupt me anytime, Mike. If you if a question pops up, just just jump in. And interrupt me because I I can I can talk and talk and talk, especially about tactical civics because it's something oh, I'm passionate is, about. Yes, this they, is ba- they basically I kind of distill it to to three things. Yeah, and that is that that what they diagnosed, and when I say they, uh, people came along, came along, came along, and to the tune of about 45 volunteers over the course of the past 16 years Mm. have invested uh, upwards 80,000 hours of research and development. And we're talking some sharp, you know, some sharp folks. Now, Uh, this is mind boggling to me. That number is accurate. 80,000 hours invested into this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's something I think viewers will agree that you have no choice, but to take this seriously. You have, yeah, but and and what you there's a lot, okay. Our mission is is uh, it's not it's simple, but it is dense. Yeah. Uh, and when I say simple, they asked the question, "How do we get here?" And what they diagnosed were three problems, uh, consistent with our founding principles, uh, consistent with the very specific details of how the founders were thinking and how the founding generation was thinking when they were you know, bringing this together and, and framing our constitution. Problem one is a spiritual problem. Mm. And that is, is that for generations we have uh, turned our backs on God and, and really uh, uh, considered the knowledge of God as irrelevant to uh, 
the governing of a republic. As somehow primitive thinking. As somehow primitive thinking, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it, which is, is uh, the irony is, is that, you know, we've allowed, uh, we've allowed humanists and atheists to dominate the cultural dialogue and to pose as presenting something that actually appeals to the intellect, yeah. uh, that presents a coherent philosophy of existence that explores the mysteries of being. Mm-hmm. But it's nothing more than uh, uh, than a palliative for existential grievances. That's what the new atheism is. It's, uh, uh, it's a religion of consolation. And yeah. it doesn't appeal to the mind at all. It's it's radical absurdity, and, uh, <laughs> with with a lot of uh, with a lot of verbiage and 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 uh, you know they can loquaciously go on and on about their absurdity. I but, love that phrase, radical absurdity. Wow, yeah, it, that's really what it is. And and so so you know we're encouraging people to return to uh, to serious uh, spiritual and religious practice, not religion. Uh, uh, Patrick Henry, one of his famous quotes is that it can't be emphasized uh, too often or too strongly that this great nation uh, was founded not by, uh, uh, not by religionists, but by Christians. Hmm. And not by religions, but by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to have to grab my uh, adapter. My, my, uh, I just got a message. I wasn't paying attention to my battery. Hmm. There we go. Sorry. That's okay. He said it, it was founded not by religionists, but by Christians and not by religions, but by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm. And he said, and it's for this reason that people of other faiths have actually found refuge and asylum here and freedom of worship here. Like the, the whole idea of the freedom to worship is a uniquely Christian idea. Mm. And, and so, so that's problem number one is, is we've, considered God unnecessary and and God kind of said, okay, go ahead and you do it the way you want to do it and we'll see how <laughs> that's it works. Right. And, that's right. and now we see what we've gotten. Problem right. two is a legal problem. Mm. And uh and and what that is is that nobody is enforcing the Constitution. The Constitution is our supreme law, mm. right? Law. Mm. <laughs> But we created the Constitution, we the people, we created the Constitution for a very specific purpose. Mm. And it is to the government what a positive law, an ordinary law, is to us. Mm. And so we, we, we crafted the Constitution to actually govern the government right. and stipulated to ourselves the authority to enforce it. And that's why it's not being enforced, because we've neglected that duty and that responsibility. And we've lost the understanding that we actually have authority to enforce it. Right. That we used to like we used to uh, take action. There's some great stories around the Alien and Sedition Acts, which was just a decade into our new republic, uh, right. constitutional republic, right? Uh, where you saw the people kind of stepping forward and, and asserting authority uh, or actually refusing the authority that they had in the case mm-hmm. of the Alien Sedition Acts. Right. 
And so that's the second problem. It's a legal problem. Nobody's enforcing it. And what Tactical Civics is trying to do is is, uh, build up local county chapters and then educate people on what their authority actually is. And that authority is given expression through the grand jury system. Yes. Tell us about this. So when you look at the history of grand jury, and there's a, there's a phenomenal book, which was out of print. Uh, David actually found it. It's, it was one of those 110 books that he uh, just dove into. It is a remarkable history of grand jury beginning in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1634 up through uh, 1941. So it's, uh, it's a 300-year survey of mm. grand jury because, and I, I just got a message today from somebody uh, who teaches a constitution class uh, with some kind of prominent uh, constitutional uh, advocates uh, mm-hmm. who who have some nonprofits that advocate for, I won't mention their names, but that, that said, you know, we don't talk about grand jury at all. Or yeah. about involvement in grand jury, right? And, uh, and and was just wondering about that. You know, why is that? Well, grand jury, you know, before we ever even thought about a constitution, had a seven hundred year history in English common law. And so, by the time you get to colonial America, the the colonists they had a very deep, uh, uh, substantial understanding of what the authority of grand jury was, what it meant to be a part of a grand jury. And after the reading that I've done, like I can say without any reservation at all, that had it not been for colonial grand juries, there wouldn't have been a war for independence. Well, that's a very powerful statement. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, grand juries to to the layperson, and I count myself in that category, a grand jury seems like this is a a very legal kind of entity and it's not something for common people to pursue or have access to. This is something for the lawyers, something for the government. This is something very intimidating. It's something to kind of be left to the experts. And the reality is, is the opposite, is it not? It's the exact opposite. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, in the founding generation, uh, you had you had farmers and blacksmiths that could read, uh, you know, uh, 10,000 word uh, policy papers and Mm -hmm. and could read Locke and and Montesquieu and and uh, Frederick uh, Bastiat, they could read that, understand it, comprehend it. And, you know, we don't have that now. Uh, mm. But grand jury, and, and this is, uh, grand jury belonged exclusively to the people. And it belonged to the people before it ever, before we ever became a republic. Mm. In, in the evolution of grand jury in English common law, it was well understood that the oath of a grand juror was something that was fulfilled in total independence of the courts, of mm. the justices, of the prosecutors. Mm. It was the people's bulwark against injustices and oppression on behalf of the government. And they understood that. 
and and they knew what their authority was. They knew what their independence was. And when you look at the founding generation, and we're just talking like 1760 to 1775. Uh, I'll tell you one story, 1769, John Hancock. So, so the crown and a lot of the reason for this was because uh, when you go back to the stamp, uh, the stamp act and the resistance around that uh, it was grand juries in the colonies, in the counties, in the colonies, that were preventing the attempts by the uh, the imperial justices and imperial prosecutors uh, to uh, arrest and prosecute and imprison uh, the colonists who were resisting that unlawful act by the crown. It was the grand juries that were saying, no, we're not going to hand out an indictment against uh, these colonists who resisted and they were threatened. I mean, they were threatened with the fires of hell. That's fascinating. And, and they just refused. They said no. And, and they were, they were sent out and brought back in. They were threatened by the Imperial justices, uh, but they knew their oath and they knew their independence. And they knew that they were standing on solid historical ground and legal ground to say, we refuse to indict. And that prevented the court from pursuing the matter. They, there was nothing they could do. So here's what they did is they set up admiralty courts in the colonies. And these admiralty courts were essentially juryless uh, courts where they could arrest and hold and prosecute uh, without any jury involvement. So John Hancock in 1769 is sitting in an admiralty jail, having been um, uh, arrested and charged by an admiralty court, which again involved uh, none of the people, no grand jury, no petite jury or petit jury. The Suffolk County grand jury, where he was being held in this admiralty court, they initiated an investigation, which was their right. They understood it was their right. They didn't need approval by the court. Uh, they they merely uh, needed to act on their authority. The court only served a role in constituting or impaneling a grand jury. They, they, they didn't have discretion to tell a grand jury whether or not uh, their suspicions of, of uh, criminal violations of the law were well-founded. That was the grand jury's uh, prerogative. Mm. And so the Suffolk County grand jury uh, pursues an indictment uh, upon an investigation into the crown's chief witness against John Hancock. And they indicted him for perjury because he had lied uh, in the evidence he presented about John Hancock this guy had lied. So the Suffolk County grand jury indicted him. And what does he do? Does he snub his nose up at it? No, he runs. He flees the county because he knows that the people have power in this particular context, that the grand jury is a powerful uh, voice of the people and also a powerful mechanism of action legally for the people. And he fled. And he was the only witness that this admiralty court had and so even as as unethical as it was, they had to let John Hancock go because they didn't have a witness. They only had one witness, and that witness had perjured himself. And that 
County grand jury indicted him for perjury. And so I, I laugh and I tell people, had it not been for the Suffolk County grand jury, there's a good chance that John Hancock would have never put his John Hancock on the Declaration. Of <laughs> the whole case crumbled because people took action. So how, took so, action. so how does, as a practical matter now, let's talk where rubber meets the road. In 2024, as you and I are sitting here in early February, how does the impaneling of grand juries help us in small towns? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> so what we have done is, uh, and again, when you get into tactical civics and you start, you know, peeling back the layers, you yes. realize very quickly uh, with just a little bit of investigation that wow, these they're not making this up as they go along. There's been right. a lot of war gaming. There's been a lot of thought. So, so our first goal is to build county chapters. We, we need numbers because, you know, the sovereignty that belongs to we, the people is not an individual sovereignty. It's a collective sovereignty. Yes. One of the first Supreme court decisions, uh, Chisholm versus Georgia, chief justice, John Jay said that at the revolution, the sovereignty dissolved onto the people. Yes. And then he refers to us as joint tenants in the sovereignty. And that's a technical, that's technical language. And you can look up joint tenancy and what that means in terms of responsibilities and authorities. Mm. And so we have to act collectively. We, we, we have to get numbers. So we're trying to get one half of 1% of our county population mm. educated, understanding in very clear terms what, what the authority is and what's great for us, even though we don't need this, because we, like I say, we've got a, you know, a, a, a thousand year history of grand jury and uh, in, in its evolution in English common law and and how it functioned. We, so we're on such solid footing in terms of how grand jury is supposed to function. And we have the Fifth Amendment that is explicit. It's not ambiguous. A third grader could understand this. No one can be held. Okay, I think everybody knows what no one means. I think right. everybody knows what can be held right. to answer. I think we know what that means for a capital crime or otherwise infamous crime. I think we understand what those two things mean, mm. uh, except by a presentment or indictment by a grand jury. That's it. There aren't, aren't any qualifications on that. You seems can't crystal, be held. Seems crystal clear to me. You can't be held to answer for a crime except by presentment of a grand jury or indictment by a grand jury. What we don't understand is how in our grand jury system, how the, the people filled that role and that responsibility and how they acted on it. We've lost that knowledge. Like we completely don't understand it. And most every American, and I tell people all the time, uh, Mike, that our, our, our greatest uh, enemy right now is our own ignorance. Agreed. And our and our apathy. Uh, but that's the you know, people talk about being afraid of AI. The AI I'm afraid of is apathy and ignorance. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a great point. That's what will kill us. I'm not I'm not really worried about the artificial intelligence kind because I think human beings are good at solving problems. And 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 I have a lot of confidence in our ability to solve problems as they present themselves, including artificial intelligence. But the one problem that that it's difficult for us to address is our own apathy and our own ignorance, because yes. that requires something that we're not very good at. And that's, that's uh, self-awareness and self-honesty. We tend to, you know, not, not 
want to be honest with ourselves. So, so what we've done is, is, uh, you know, we're growing our chapters, we're educating members and we've, we've drafted two model county ordinances. Okay. And the first ordinance is a county grand jury ordinance. And let me tell you what that does and how it uh, addresses uh, the challenge and, and provides mechanisms within the ordinance itself and ordinance. And this is kind of a novel approach because typically you would go the route of municipal laws uh, and, and ordinances. But in this case, we're, we're going the route of the county because a county ordinance binds all the municipalities in that county uh, to abide by and recognize that operative county law because an ordinance has the force of law in a county. Gotcha. And what our ordinance does, it does a few things. Uh, first of all, it... Uh, uh, it recognizes and restates, and there's a great Supreme Court decision. It's a 1992 decision uh, where Antonin Scalia wrote the majority decision uh, opinion, and uh, it's U.S. versus Williams. And he, he writes this very elegant and thorough rehearsal of the history and tradition of grand jury. Mm. And he talks at length about its independence. He talks about its investigatory scope. He says... Uh, a grand jury, there's no one that is outside of the purview of a grand jury. Uh, he talks about the the authority that a grand jury has to initiate investigations, and he, he makes two qualifications. He says a grand jury can initiate an investigation merely on the suspicion that a law is being criminally violated, or, he said, for the assurance that one is not being criminally violated. He says it operates independent of any apparatus of the courts, independent of the judge, independent of the prosecutor. And James Wilson, who was you know one of our founding legal scholars, uh, first Supreme Court justices, uh, taught law in Philadelphia, taught George Washington and his cabinet. Uh, and he talked about grand jury, and he said that that the scope of inquiry of a grand jury is limited only by its own diligence. I just thought that was a, a, a brilliant statement. So our ordinance establishes a few things. Number one, an opportunity for people to make uh, complaints so that we require the county government to host a county grand jury web page. And mm -hmm. on that web page, there's a button. I would like to file a complaint. And the beautiful thing about it is that you can file it anonymously. Let's paint a scenario. Small town, like my own, people that work for the city government or the county government, been working for the local government for 30 years. They have seen and are seeing corruption. They're seeing things happen that shouldn't be happening, but it's a small town. You go to church with these folks, you run into them at the grocery store. And so you don't want to torpedo your career. You don't want to become the center of a scandal. So you're not going to lift your head up and stand up and say something. Right. Just going to, you know, put in your hours and, and ignore it. Right. Well, that complaint button, you can, you can issue a complaint of a suspected violation of the law by our elected servants anonymously. You can also put your John Hancock on it as well. Right. That's right. the first thing. First thing is, is that people can make complaints, suspicions. Imagine a county where that ordinance was in operation and that mechanism existed in a county that where there was a suspicion of election fraud and thousands of people submit complaints 
of suspicion, of evidence, of witness, of of election fraud. The constituting court does not have any discretion at that point. Once that number of people reaches a certain threshold, and our ordinance sets that threshold at one half of 1% of ballots cast in the last election. And so that that is a that is a, a clause in our ordinance. It says when when one half of one percent of people equaling the number of ballots cast in the last election submit a complaint on an issue, the constituting court is obligated at that port, point to impanel a grand jury to investigate. Interesting. So we put that requirement in there, and that's that's not something we made up. That's a part of our history. It's a part of our tradition of grand jury and, and, and what necessitates. And even the federal rules of criminal procedure get that right. Now, they use the language uh, when the public good so determines, uh, then a, a, a federal judge has to impanel a grand jury. But we all know that that's code for when the government says so. Wow. That's what right. the public good means. Right. Uh, but what we understand is that the public good is when the people speak. Right. And, and guess what? We don't only speak in ballot boxes and uh, in lawsuits and courtrooms. Uh, we actually have ways that we can take action on constitutional matters. We've just forgotten how to do that. So we put that in our, in our ordinance. Another thing we put in our ordinance is the ability for somebody to volunteer to serve on grand jury. Now, in, in states that are doing it right, uh, it's a blind draw from the voter rolls. Right. So that's how, that's how a grand jury is selected. Well, what we put now, we understand that 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 process has been corrupted in a majority of counties in America. The the district judge, the prosecutor, the sheriff, the whatever, you know, that inner group. There are some counties where they're picking the people. They're drawing the names themselves. It's not a blind draw. Mm. It's supposed to be, but it's not. So what our ordinance does is it obligates the county to maintain a standby roster of volunteers for grand jury. So the county clerk, based on the people who go to that web page, click the button, I want to volunteer for grand jury. And they submit their name. That is where this standby roster is created. And we require in our ordinance for the standby roster to be included in the roster, in the existing roster, uh, where grand jury is chosen from. So imagine, you know, so hundreds. What I'm, what I'm hearing is you guys, this ordinance takes the power to impanel a grand jury from a federal judge's sole discretion. It's not federal. So we're not going federal. I mentioned federal okay. federal criminal statutes. They get it right in terms of the requirement to impanel. It's when the public good so determines that a, a grand jury needs to be impaneled to investigate a suspected crime. Uh, but these are operating within the states. We don't want to venture into the world of federal uh criminal jurisprudence because that system has been captured and corrupted. We have a plan to address that. Yes. But, but the execution of our authority uh, and our voice is happening at the County level and every County grand jury is uh, 
as soon as it's impaneled, is operating as a state grand jury. So to call it a county grand jury is somewhat of a misnomer. It is a state grand jury. And at that point, when it's impaneled, they have the authority to make anyone the target of an investigation. Merely based on a suspicion or just for an assurance that a law is not being violated. So we we create this standby roster where because a lot of people have gone their whole lives and never been called upon for grand jury. Well, the law of averages says that you should have been called upon to serve at some point in your life if you're a voting member of your community, especially in a small town. But it's not happening for a lot of people. So we create that. We create the opportunity to uh, present complaints, the opportunity to volunteer for grand jury. And then we also require the county to put links for training. And so we, we're going to tactical civics is going to facilitate ongoing training of the members of our communities on what it is to serve on grand jury mm. and you know what your authority is, what your independence is. And so that's just, uh, you know, we're in phase one now. Phase one is, is, is uh, to organize and educate. So that's where we are right now. Organize, educate. And uh, and when we reach a certain point, we'll move on to phase two. And phase two is the activate stage. And that's where we activate and pursue passage of our county ordinances and and restore law enforcement. Because that's the big deal is 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 uh, is law enforcement. Nobody's enforcing the Constitution. And we're going to begin holding our state legislators. We're going to start with them, but also our federal legislators. Uh, but we're really going to focus on local and state to uh, exercise our authority and to let our servants know that the boss is back in the building and that we're the sovereign and they're the servant. This is where the magic is. It takes the power to investigate away from the quote unquote authorities and puts it back where it belongs in the hands of the people. Exactly. That's the only way that we can actually superintend our servants, which is what we created our federal constitution to do. And we also created our state constitutions to do. You read virtually every single state constitution and it'll have this line. It'll say, uh, knowing that all power resides in and is consequently derived from the people, we retain at all times an unalienable and indefeasible right to alter, abolish, or reform such government as we see fit. I mean, it, it it's unambiguous in every state constitution, and it's unambiguous in our federal constitution, uh, Amendments 9, Amendment 10, uh, state that in, in, in pretty clear terms. But that is the middle ground, okay? That's where we really establish our offensive phalanx. Yeah. But the big target, the big goal, and this is the third problem, mm. is that we've lost representation in America. They, they, Congress illegally stripped away representation from the people with their unconstitutional and illegal 1929 Reapportionment Act. Yeah. And, you know, there is, um, so I don't, have you ever heard about our original First Amendment? I have not, and I'm ashamed to admit it. And so that's why I'm very, very happy that you're about to explain it to us. Yeah. So when 
Congress passed the Bill of Rights, it contained 12 articles or 12 mm. amendments. Mm. And they sent those 12 amendments to the states. Mm. Original Article the 3rd through Original Article the 12th were all ratified by the required number of states and became Amendment 1 through 10, what we all now know as our Bill of Rights. The original first and the original second were not ratified by what they needed 12 states to ratify. The original second had 10 states. And the subject of the original Second Amendment had to do with congressional pay. And it simply stated that if Congress uh, approved an increase in pay, that an election would have to intervene and a new Congress would have to be seated before that pay raise could take effect. For whatever reason, it wasn't wasn't ratified by, and only only 10 states ratified it. Okay. 200 years later, (laughs) this is wild. This is our precedent. 200 years later, this University of Texas college student named Greg Watson becomes aware of this amendment, 1983. And he goes on a personal crusade, takes him nine years And in 1992, he crossed the finish line. He got 28 more states to ratify it because 10 already had. And what no one knew was that it was just sitting, collecting dust as a pending amendment because we kept adding states. Well, you didn't have to start over. You can count the original 10. Yeah, the original 10. Yeah, there are states. They're a dumb question, but I needed to know that. Yeah, no question. It, it uh, ten just needed twenty-eight more. He crossed that finish line in nineteen ninety-two, and the original Second Amendment became that dealt with congressional pay. It became our new Twenty-Seventh Amendment, which is still our last amendment that was added to the Constitution. Mm. The original First Amendment was an amendment where Congress created a formula that put a cap on the size of representative districts. And I got to tell you a quick story: Constitutional mm. Convention. It's the 11th hour, like the the Constitution is done. It's finished. And Nathaniel Gorham, one of the uh, delegates, makes a motion about Article 1, Section 2, Clause 4, which was the apportionment clause. And his motion was, can we change the ratio of representation from one for every 40,000 to one for every 30,000? When he made that motion... Guess who stands up and and <clears throat> clears his throat for the first time in the Constitutional Convention? Five months, George Washington. Okay, he had he had utterly and intentionally refrained from speaking on any matter because he was the president of right. the Confederacy, right? And he knew what his uh, he knew what his influence was, so he didn't speak about a thing. When Nathaniel Gorham made that motion, George Washington stands up and he says. I strongly encourage the passage of this motion because this issue more than any other, the smallness of representative districts will ensure ratification of this constitution because this is the people's greatest fear is that representation will get too small in respect to the population. And then you go and you look at all the state ratification debates and you hear guys like William Carey Nicholas, who went on to become the governor of Virginia, I think it was. Uh, and, it, and, and, and he was a delegate 
in the ratification convention where the Virginia was ratifying. And in his speech, he says, I take it for granted that from now on, the ratio of representation will be one representative for every 30,000 people because it's right here in plain English. And, and that alone gives me confidence to vote for ratification of this constitution because I know that we'll always have adequate representation. So Washington encouraged that. It passed unanimously and was sent on to the states. The original First Amendment expanded that formula, and it said that after the first uh, census, uh, that the ratio would be one representative for every 30,000 until Congress reaches the number of 100, after which the ratio will be one representative for every 40,000 until such time as Congress reaches the number of 200, after which the ratio will be one for every 50,000. Now, George Otis, the registrar the uh, who was archivist for the Constitutional Convention, by a stroke of his pen, there was a there was a, a transcription error. It said no less than one for thirty thousand until it reached the number of one hundred, and then it said no less than representative ratio, no less than one for forty thousand until the number reaches two hundred, and then it said no more than one for every fifty thousand. And that got sent to the states. Well, in Connecticut, so 11 states ratified it. Connecticut was the 12th state. But their Senate and House had a controversy because one uh, chamber's version said no less than one for 50,000. And one chamber's version said no more than one for 50,000. And so so they had an argument over that. And one of the houses wanted to change the language. Well, Legally and technically, they couldn't. They'd have to leave Congress to sort that out because each house had 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 voted for ratification. Well, what happens is is Connecticut seals their notice of ratification. Now, was there some nefarious going on there, uh, respective of representation and trying to prevent that amendment from being passed? I don't know. All I know is that Connecticut sealed their notice of ratification, and never delivered it to Congress. And Congress has to receive a valid notice of ratification for it to take effect as a ratification by a state. And so it fell one state short of becoming our First Amendment is what it would have been. And it, it so that means that like the original second, it is sitting as a pending amendment. And so... Our our ultimate goal is once we restore law enforcement in thousands of counties all across America and we begin holding our elected servants <laughs> in earnest, holding them accountable, our ultimate goal is to then go to our state legislators our, in session and go in mass. So we're talking about tens of thousands per state that are showing up at the Capitol mm. and presenting our standing resolution and and making them do their duty to vote for ratification of our original First Amendment to restore representation back to the people where it belongs. And so what that'll do is that'll create 6,400 or so new representative districts. Mm. 
it'll constrain them to be no no larger than 50,000 people. And so that changes everything because what we realized is that we could not use our powers of enforcement of the constitution to uh, take on multinational corporations. Right. That's a losing, that's a losing fight. No, the game's rigged, right? Game's rigged. And, and they've got enough money and enough lawyers to, to stretch it out until, and, and, you know, for the next six generations. Right. So we're not going up against them. Uh, we're holding our, particularly beginning with our local and state elected servants accountable, teaching them to have a proper godly fear of the people acting in their authority, their stipulated authority. And that's important. We stipulate this authority to ourselves in the constitution. We're going to teach them to fear. And then we're going to break the leash that corporations have uh, representatives on the end of. We're going to, we're going to break the leash. Mm. We're going to restore representation to the people we're going to encourage in all of our states and all these districts. We're going to, first of all, it'll break the power that urban metropolitan areas right now hold on elections. Right. Because in many states, the, how the largest city votes is how the state goes, basically. Yeah. So we're, and when you look at the precinct map of all of those urban areas and all those, you know, states that go blue, you see a lot of red and purple. Yeah, in those do. precinct maps. Yes, you do. Just like we were talking about earlier. You said, you know, don't you, don't you think people kind of naturally uh, tend to be center right? And, uh, you know, Elon Musk is a good uh, proof of that and, and how he, he's now considered center right <laughs> because the right. left just took off into la la. <laughs> he's talked right. about that. But most people are. And so, so we'll be able to leverage that uh, in, in these small districts. And it's going to it'll break the back of gerrymandering. So gerrymandering will end. They may still try. But right now, district drawing districts is a bloody political battle. Correct. Right. Courts get involved in money gets involved in. I mean, it's because it has so much consequence. Right. So we end that we, we drop these districts right now. Do you know what the average ratio of representation is? It's one representative on average, for every 750,000 people. Wow. That's not representation. No, that's not an ungodly number. Clearly, (laughs) clearly not the vision that the founders had for a representative government. And there are some districts where one representative is representing a million people. That's absurd. I mean, that's that's absurd. And so we're going to break that. It'll end gerrymandering. It'll end lobbying. How How do you lobby? that many districts 6,500 people right yeah how do, how do you lobby that and then it's it's going to and and here's the amazing thing is we can we can bankroll this for less than what we're currently spending per uh congressperson we currently we spend 10 million dollars per congress for per senator and representative 10 million is our budget for wow. each Congress member, we can spend that same amount of money and 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 pay for 60, you know, 65, 6,800 representatives because 
number one, what's going to happen is it's going to encourage our actual neighbors, people in our communities who are known to be ethical, smart, hardworking, successful, who will be encouraged to actually want to serve their neighbors because you'll be able to walk across your district. Right. And so they're going to be encouraged to actually step forward and serve because the first act, and this is our vision, the first act of that new Congress is to assemble in some large venue in Washington, D.C., hmm. and to consider one act, and that is an act that we've already drafted called the Bring Congress Home Act. Hmm. And it stipulates that every representative works full-time from within their home district in a modest office with two staff people. And it stipulates that our senators work in an office in their state capitol, a little bit larger, with six staff people. So we bring them all home Mm. where we can walk into their office, where we can have access to them. Where accountable, they don't have to go and take out a second mortgage and live a second life with a second wife and a you know second set of pets and whatever, you know (laughs) second club membership, spa membership, you know whatever they get, all those perks are. No more granite dome syndrome. No walking into the Capitol Rotunda and going, oh, (laughs) right. Well, you know, you know what the key to that is is that now if you're a congressperson or a senator, you don't have to spend. What's the number? Two thirds or three quarters of your time raising money, because now now the campaigns and now running your office is so much more affordable. Yeah, yeah. No more bought uh, uh, offices. No mm. more big money coming in to uh, uh, to select a candidate. You know, whoever spends the most money uh, wins. It, it, it'll end that. It'll totally change the face of electoral politics. It'll actually make electoral politics mean something. And I've had people say, what, 6,500? How in the world will they get anything done? And my first response is, uh, yeah, that's kind of part of the idea. (laughs) We would like for them to just kind of stop for a bit. And and, and let's recalibrate and let's reset. Right. But the second thing is, is that the workload will be significantly less. And if COVID showed us anything, the maybe one blessing of COVID uh, is, first of all, they tipped their hand and now we're on, you know, we're more, more and more people are onto their game. But you the can work from home. You can work from home. Yeah. They, they can do all their business through video conference and telepresence. No problem. We have the technology to do that. Uh Blockchain will become a huge part of that, uh, and the technologies you know surrounding blockchain and the, it, its security features, and so they'll be able to do that. And we've got right now tactical civics. We've got nineteen proposed reform laws that we've drafted, mm. and we you know we borrow from the work of a lot of really great legal scholars, constitutional scholars. One of them is uh, Phil Hamburger at Columbia. Mm. Uh, it's kind of the uh, uh, preeminent scholar on administrative law and the danger of administrative law, the illegality of administrative law, and how the executive branch through administrative law has created uh, uh, legislation by decree and bypassing both the courts and the legislative branch. And mm. 
yeah, so we've we've uh, yeah, we've war gamed a lot of this, thought through a lot of this. We've we've you know taken from some really great minds, and um, and we're going to restore to those who want to assume the, the the requisite duties and responsibilities that are required to actually keep a republic. You know, Benjamin Franklin's famous words. Uh, Republic if you can Adam keep it right you know we're we're just we're going to help equip people educate people and provide a community of of both faith and duty for we the people to collectively come together and and perform our duties enforce the constitution superintend our elected servants prosecute, indict, and prosecute the ones who are grossly violating our highest law. It's no longer going to be a civil matter when you violate our highest law knowingly, because we're going to put them on notice. We're, we're working on an app called the Indictment Engine. Every piece of proposed legislation is going to run through that. And if it's a violation of the Constitution, we're going to uh, contact those, those uh, sponsors and say, hey, just letting you know that this is a violation. And so we're putting you on notice that if you intend to uh, continue to pursue this unconstitutional legislation, uh, we're going to pursue an indictment. So if you want to take your name off of it, we'll say all's good. <laughs> proceed, proceed at your own risk, in other words. Proceed at your own risk because the boss is back in the building where, and we're going to be operating in our constitutionally stipulated authority. So there's no magic to this in terms of, you know, nothing esoteric, nothing hidden. It's just right. duties that are in the constitution that we stipulate to ourselves. And we're, we've, we've laid them aside. We've abdicated. Uh, abdicated them. And, and so we're taking them, we're just taking them back up and we're teaching people what they actually mean, who we actually are, what it means to be a part of a sovereign. And we're teaching people how to think like a sovereign, how yeah. to think like a boss. Yeah. And because they're, we employ them. They're our employees. They're not our rulers. Right. But every elected servant, I'm talking from every small town on up in the culture that we have now, they assume office with this overwhelming uh, sense of entitlement to rule. They think they're celebrities, Jeff. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, you know, they think that they're there like it's some kind of reward. It's a responsibility. It's a responsibility to lead. It's it's not a trophy. It's not a reward. You didn't win a prize. <laughs> There's work to be yeah. done by God. Yeah. We, what we want is we want our elected servants, anyone that would that would want to step forward and assume an elected office to understand this very clear principle that they're taking their sovereign hat off and putting their servant hat on. Exactly. And that their mandate is to listen and obey. I mean, this is, this is obviously a very, very powerful idea and i'm hoping that people kind of take this message to heart and understand that getting involved and getting engaged is the only way 
And I don't know what else um, is needed. TacticalCivics.com. Just if people will just go to TacticalCivics.com, we've got a few videos there. If you know if a person you know wants to hear it again, uh, I've got a video on there that's about twelve minutes long that I do a pretty condensed overview of what our our mission and objectives are. And uh, you know they can go there and if we have a join now button. You can join. It's only five dollars a month. Uh, if you do it monthly, it's $50 a year. If you do it yearly and you can go in for a month and kick the tires, you can download every resource we have. We've got uh, a, a mountain of books, copious amounts of articles and, and, uh, discussing all of this material. It's not, you know, there's no fluff anywhere on our training center. Mm-hmm. And, and we have a very, uh, intentional, system for training people that that join our mission we don't just have you join take your money and then you know just let you we've got all the material there we have zoom studies every week that our members uh, can participate in i teach one every monday night except first monday of the month Uh, we have zoom studies we have articles uh we have this self-paced orientation process when people join uh we, we direct them in what they need to do, what materials we want them to read, what their first steps are. And, and uh, you know, we really, for anyone who is motivated and want to take action, they, they've made the decision, I'm going to do something. Mike, a year ago, a little over November of 22 is when I joined Tactical Civics. I didn't mm. know any of this. Mm. I, I was... I was overwhelmed with such a sense of clarity, a refreshing and powerful sense of clarity mm. when I first started reading the materials. And and David, in the books that he's written, has a suggested reading list and all the things that inspired him. And we're talking some great legal books, uh, a great resource that the University of Chicago put together called the Founders Constitution. It's an mm. annotated constitution. It goes clause by clause. And you click on a clause and it takes you to a page full of documents, founding documents, uh, fundamental principles, correspondence between the founders, records of the debates about that one clause. Uh, And and I have for the past over over a year, I've just immersed myself in it, spent hundreds of hours reading. And fortunately, I'm blessed with good reading comprehension and and it's been liberating and and joyful, and I have probably felt a sense of God's purpose in a way that I've never felt or haven't felt for a long time. And I, you know, I've been a pastor where I work. I work in the local church. I'm a music director, worship leader. I was a professional musician for years. But the sense of clarity and purpose and and uh, and righteousness and goodness that I that I see in and what could only have been an act of God's providence that our founders put together. Yeah, they were flawed men. I mean, and that's a, a, they understood that they were flawed. They understood that people were flawed. That's why they wrote it the way that they did. That's why they said things like, uh, you know, a syllogism of the founding generation was that virtue and morality were necessary for a Republican government. And religion was necessary for virtue and morality. So religion was necessary for a Republican form of government. 
and it was just a syllogism that they understood and and they understood our propensity for pride and ego and and uh, to serve self instead of serve our neighbor and so that's why they put the constraints in that they did and so the amount of you know the the level of clarity that I've got and and a sense of purpose uh and the commitment i mean i i'm I'm in it until the until I breathe my last and I'm doing it because I want the next generation to be able to actually experience what it is to live in freedom yeah, and to have liberty because out of freedom and out of liberty comes goodness. Like it, it, people aren't living under coercion. They're not living under the threat of the sword. Yes. They can actually pursue purpose pursue lives of meaning. Uh, you know, everything we're seeing right now in our culture, all the crazy stuff that we're seeing is the outcome of a people who have been rudderless and they've been rudderless because they've been living under an oppressive system yes. that, that, that penalizes productivity. It penalizes success. And we've gotten to the point now in the game where people have checked out of you know, even aspiring to succeed and produce because everything looks so hopeless and it looks pointless because of the rent seeking moral hazard criminals that occupy Washington, DC. And so I want to end that. And I believe that tactical civics by God's grace has a solution that is applicable. It's, it's a plan that can work if we step forward and say, I will do this. Show me what I need to do and I will do it. And if you don't show me, I'm going to call somebody or I'm going to message somebody in the training center and say, show me what to do. I mean, if you'll step forward and say, I'm going to do this, that's all it takes. And our, we have grown in January of 21. We only had 500 members. Mm across America mm. in, in 80 counties, 260 counties, I think. Mm. At the end of January, we were in 1,500 counties with 6,400 members. That's what we've done in the past year. This is, uh, this is the future. Um, you know, the, the, the folks who, who wish us ill will, um, you know, they 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 may not be ready, but this is coming. It's coming. <laughs> it is coming. It's and they coming. won't they won't be ready. And they and, won't and be ready. Won't, uh, uh, right now, I don't think they take it seriously. I don't think they Correct. believe that the people are capable. Correct. Uh, we will show them that we are, and because we're standing as as firmly in the center of our constitutional principles and our actual system of government that there it's it's an unassailable position right something that can't be attacked the grand jury is so powerful its authority rivals well first of all we the people occupy the highest office we are above presidents and judges and legislators right. why because we created them Right, constitution that we breathe life into, right. as a, as a, as a, as a uh, uh, an act of our collective will. 
So we're above them. We occupy the highest office and, and we take action on that office of sovereignty, of collective sovereignty. We take action primarily through our primordial bodies of law enforcement, which is the state grand jury, which we're establishing county by county, and the state militia, which is ours by right, a lawful militia, not a gun club, not a bunch of guys putting on camouflage and running around out in the woods shooting at stuff. <laughs> we're talking a lawfully organized militia that's established through lawful ordinance, county ordinance. Officers are appointed by the elected magistrate like they always have been. That's how militia is formed. But it belongs to the people. That was, they argued about that. They clarified that. You read through every state ratification debate. They would ask the question, who are the militia? Is it not ourselves? Mm. It's not the yeomanry of America, age 16 to 60. Mm. You read Tinch Cox, you read Patrick Henry, you read, and they understood what it was. And they acted in that authority in, in the first you know decade of of our republic's founding. You see that militia had, according to Article 1, Clause 8, uh, uh, Section 8, Clause 15, the authority to, quote, execute the laws of the Union, repel invasions and suppress insurrections. That was the authority of militia. It wasn't the authority granted to it by the Constitution. It was an authority lent to, put on loan to Congress whenever Congress needed to call upon militia to perform the duties they already had. So those weren't duties created by the, the Constitution. They were duties stipulated that they belong to the people organized lawfully to bear arms, bear the sword, first and foremost, to hold elected servants accountable and mm -hmm. to, to be the sword on behalf of the grand jury. And that really is, you know, the, the, the arrangement. And, uh, you know, obviously our, our context is way different than it was in the founding generation, but there's a place for the people to operate in their capacity for law enforcement, especially as it relates to our elected servants. And our second ordinance is our militia ordinance. And, uh, it lays out that the whole, it's brilliant. It is, uh, I remember the first time I read it and I just sat back in my chair and I just went, wow, <laughs> this is brilliant. It's, it's brilliant. It's lawful. It, it, it's constitutional. It's, it's right down the center in line with our founding principles and it will work. It, it will be an irresistible act of the people that, uh, that, that marches right down the center of our constitution. So, so I'm excited. I think while everybody's casting doom and gloom for America in 2024, I think it's the best time to be alive because I think God is doing something. I think he's moving in the hearts of people. And I think we're going to see a growing just flood of people that hear about us and immediately get, what we're doing, because I think God is opening up people's hearts and minds to, to understand what, what we are 
and as a popular system of popular constitutionalists, and they're going to get it, and they're going to go, yeah, sign me up. Tell I me think, I think that's a hundred percent right. I mean, this is enlightenment in 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 every sense of the word. The website again, tacticalcivics.com. Tacticalcivics.com. We'll see go you there. That red button. Thanks for coming by, Jeff. This was um, this was a great, great uh, conversation. A very, very informative, and I think a lot of people are going to recognize the brilliance in what you guys are doing. Um, well, I hope so. And it's you know, Mike, it's guys like you that are are helping us get the word out. And so I really appreciate you uh, uh, having me on and 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 giving us an opportunity. And as I always do, I've taken you longer than you normally go. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Well, so I appreciate I appreciate you giving you know an extra uh, 15, uh, 20 minutes to to our time. Well worth it. This is the way. Come back real soon. Keep us updated. Hey, I sure will. Anytime. Anytime. Thank you, sir.